0: Welcome back to another episode of The Development by David Podcast, number 97, we're almost at three fucking digits, 100, that is absolutely absurd to me, most podcasts don't make it past episode 5, an absolute fraction of that figure make it past episode 20, I think it's not 0.1%, you guys have been around since episode 1, I absolutely owe you so much, and um, the pursuit of me actualizing my purpose which is to create a universal quality of life through stories and education and this podcast has been the vehicle but you guys have been the motivation and the supporters behind it I appreciate every single one of you and I can't wait to share episode 100 with you it's a very special episode a very intimate one I won't give you any more clues but I just want to say please 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 stick around for that one it will mean the world to me This episode. Today is with Tim Stoddard, an entrepreneur, blogger, podcaster, and founder of Sober Nation. If you've ever wondered what lies beyond the allure of the weekend alcohol consumption, or if you're curious if life can be just as vibrant without the rollercoaster highs of alcohol, this episode might hold the answers that you seek. Tim, from his early teens, he grappled with an addictive personality. He turned to alcohol and later heroin as a way to numb the discomfort that plagued him. However, a tragic family emergency forced a transformative shift in his relationship with with substances. That led him on to create Sober Nation, a groundbreaking blog that became the largest resource for the sober community. In this episode, Tim opens up about what lies on the other side and shares the path he took to get there. Tim's personal story serves as a roadmap guiding us towards understanding addiction and the power of embracing shared suffering for a more fulfilling life. I'm really proud at several moments in this podcast where I surprise Tim with my level of research and I really take him off guard. I think you'll enjoy that too. Tim and I have a really great laugh and I'm just so delighted that you joined us from across the pond. I hope you stick around to the end. Let me know what you think of this episode and do what you always do. Share it on your story, share it in a group chat, share it with mates, share it with your gran, share it with your friend who just can't give up the bottle of the weekend. Uh Please don't send it to me. <laughs> Honestly, please, please, please let me know what you think of this. But all you got to do just now is sit back, relax and enjoy Tim Stoddard. I wanted to ask you about your um, LinkedIn bio or your Twitter or X bio You are not your khakis. Where does that come from? What does it mean? You must get that question quite a lot.
1: All the time. And it's a pretty ridiculous thing that I, I still have it there considering all of the outreach that I do because um, I, I work a lot in behavioral health. And so like I'll message a lot of CEOs and a lot of execs and you know, behavioral health type are kind of stuffy. And I, I can only imagine how many people I've turned off by it. But yeah, the quote is, uh, you are not your fucking khakis. And it's a line from a book, also a movie. Most people would recognize the movie, but the book in particular really had a big impact on me. It's called Fight Club by a guy named Chuck Palahniuk. And it's a—it's uh, basically a rant that Tyler Durden goes on where uh, he's trying to encourage these young men just to get back in touch with life. And it's, it's not fighting for the sake of fighting, but, you know, like a little bit of violence, a little bit of grit, like some discomfort. You know, you are not your fucking khakis. You're not the couch that you live in you're not the apartment that you go home to you are you like you're a, a flesh and being person in this world so i i i like looking at it every day because it always reminds me like no matter what i got going on in my life and and how good things are like i'm i'm not my fucking khaki's i'm a i'm a person who needs to get out there in the world and live life so uh yeah it's a quote that means a lot to me actually
0: i find it very Serendipitous, or fitting, or related that you used and identify and kind of call out to a quote a, that's featured in a film about violence. Because I know, as a young man, you found yourself getting into a lot of violence because of um, insecurities and how you felt about yourself during that time. From reading your story, is there any parallels between um, younger Tim hmm. and your affinity towards this this quote?
1: maybe i mean uh, there's always layers right i i would imagine so i genuinely enjoyed fighting when i was a kid i didn't actually like hurting people but i do think that violence there's a lot of there's a spectrum of violence right i'm i'm by no means advocating anybody go out and like injure somebody or hurt people at the same time I do think there is a lot of value in somebody punching you in the nose because you fucking deserve to get punched in the nose. And I absolutely think that in a lot of cases, people, especially young men, would be better off having learned those lessons where like, hey, if you mouth off to somebody, there's a chance that they'll punch you in the nose. And uh, again, like, it's a a touchy subject because I'm, I'm by no means saying that people should get in fights or, or go out to try to hurt people or especially not bully people, you know? But I, I do think that some of those lessons that I learned through mistakes that I made or mouthing off to the wrong person or even like learning how to defend myself, right? I, I, think, they've, I think they're important. And there's a quote I, I heard once, like, you can't nerf the world. And I think it's really, really important that people understand that the world is not a safe place. It's never been a safe place and it's not supposed to be a safe place. And the better off you are being in touch with that side, you know, like um, uh, Robert Green talks about it a lot. He calls it like the the monster or something. And um, who's that psychologist? Not Freud. The other one, he has the shadow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Calium? exactly. Yeah. Like being in touch with the shadow, like we all have a darkness to us and and I think I think it's important to, to be able to be in touch with that. So, you know, it's a touchy subject. If you listen to this, don't go fucking hurting somebody and then say like, well, Tim said it was okay to punch them. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that
0: there is value to physicality. I'm someone who's a huge proponent of MMA and boxing. I do boxing myself. And I found, as a young man, boxing a form of expression, especially in a place in Scotland, that arts and crafts and creativity was frowned upon. It was ostracised from the tribe. The closest thing I could find towards art that was socially acceptable for a man to do, a quote-unquote modern-day man to do, was boxing, and it was my my quintessential therapy. As such, do you think violence and your propensity to be violent as a young person was your insides getting out almost
1: yeah absolutely and muay thai i've i've been training muay thai for years and years and years and it's always a funny thing where the people that know how to fight are the ones that are least apt to do so because you don't need to right and i i wrestled as a kid Um, in high school, I wasn't very good at it. I'm from Philadelphia and Pennsylvania is a state inside the United States that is just like a big wrestling state. And when I say a big wrestling, like these kids are bred from four years old to learn how to wrestle. And so they're, they're very good. And my dad was a really good wrestler. And so I never quite lived up to that skill. Nonetheless, just being able to do it and being able to get that angst out through physicality was always like a a real big part of my life when when you mentioned like the parts of my past with with the violence i I never was actually like a violent person and i never went out and bullied anybody it was always the opposite for me i was always very quiet i was always very quiet very shy excuse me and got picked on and it it really it, it got to the point where I just realized one day that like, hey, I, I know how to wrestle. Like, I know how to do this. I've I've been training my whole life, basically. Like, why am I letting people pick on me? And then after a, a couple of skirmishes, you know, it's nothing terrible that happened. I stopped getting pick, picked on. And it really was like a big moment in my youth where it's like, huh, this is better to have and not need than to need and not have. And ever since then, like martial arts has just been... A huge,
0: huge part of my life. And it's going to be a big part of my my kids' lives as well. I'm reminded of a Jordan Peterson, Peterson's quote um, You should learn to be a monster and learn how to control it.
1: Yeah, for and sure.
0: Some people are quite against the beliefs of Peterson, but that's one quote that I, I do you kind know, of stand beside. Um, we did touch on your early childhood and what your character looked like as a young Tim. Can you bring to life? The kind of origin of your story.
1: Me too. I had great parents, man. I so you know eventually we'll get to the point of my having addiction problems and being in recovery. And and when I got in recovery, I heard a lot of people talk about their parents not caring for them and not loving them. And I never ever felt that way, man. My parents like always had my back. And uh, as I've gotten older, especially, and I see the damage that happens to people when they don't have like a father figure, especially, but if they don't have both parents in their lives, like I'm so grateful that my parents were both there for me. With that said, they were just young, man. Like they, we can joke about it now. They would never said this, but like, I wasn't planned, right? Like I was a teenage unplanned pregnancy basically. And so through that, it was just tough. But at the same time, like now that I'm older, I look back at it. Like I didn't, know that it was tough when I was a kid. It's just when you get older and you have a little bit of perspective, you're like, oh, wow, like things were a little bit different for us than they were for for other people. But I never saw that as like a crutch. I never saw it as something that you know, like, woe is me. I don't have these things that other people have. It wasn't like that just because my family had a lot of love, a whole lot of love. Like we ate dinner together every night. Um my Dad would show up to all my my wrestling matches and all my soccer games. I mean, I played sports year round. I played lacrosse. Uh, my my mom is the writer in my family. She's where I got my writing, just um, my love for words. Basically, my my reading and my writing. And you know, of course, I had like my my grandparents and they're immigrants and my my aunts and uncles and like we were like a clan. You know, it really is that way. That's that's like part of of the culture. It's it's like a mess with one mess with all and everybody knows each other's business all the time. Right. Mm And so there was like a lot of love in my family, but it was hard. Like it was, it was just difficult. Um, so I don't even really know where things started getting, where I started getting in my own way is the best way to put it. I think a lot of it had to do with, um, with, Not having sports, I suppose, when I graduated high school. But I don't know. I can tell I'm I'm kind of stumbling on this part a little bit because there there was no reason for me to veer down the path that I did. I just was born with like this angst and this discomfort of I'm doing something wrong, you know, like I'm different, and it's all bullshit. But I just felt that way, and so yeah, like. A childhood full of love and a childhood that was just full of trouble. <laughs> like i I just could not stay out of trouble for as long as I can remember. And I really mean that. like for as long as I can remember, i've I've been obsessive. I've been overly just when I get something in my head, i I cannot stop thinking about it until i I, I do it. And I've, I've had these, these weird quirks about me, right, where just obsessiveness was like a superpower for me, but it was also like a real path of self-destruction. And so as I as, as started, as the years went by, I just self-destructed more and more and more until eventually it, it really came to a head and, you know, it, it all went boom.
0: At what moment was your first foray of comforting that discomfort with destruction? Was it when you were twelve and smoked cannabis for the first time, or marijuana for the first time?
1: I don't know, Probably not. Um, yeah, the first thing that comes into my my head, this is so strange that this memory popped up. I was a little kid, I don't know, six, something like that, old enough to remember because I remember it pretty vividly. And we went to kmart. Kmart was like a little shopping store where you could buy like clothes and stuff like that, like back to school. And my mom got me like some lifesavers. And I remember her saying like, you're going to have one. And it was just so difficult for me. Like when I say the obsessiveness, that's, that's what I mean. Like I've never finished. I've never not finished a plate of food. I've never not drank the whole glass of scotch or wine or whatever it is. I just, I finished things. Right. And I remember her saying you can have one lifesaver and the whole drive home. I just couldn't stop thinking about them. And so when we got home, I snatched them out of her purse and I ran up into the bathroom and I ate all of them all at once. And then I could hear her coming upstairs. And so then I spit them all in the toilet and I flushed them down the toilet because I didn't want to get caught. And so I i don't know why this memory is even popping up in my head, but that's sort of like a little microcosm of what it is. Like Instead of enjoying a thing for the thing, I have to do as much of it as I can, as quickly as I can, and then like lie about it. And, uh, and that always stuck with me. Just that strange personality type that eventually manifested itself into, you know, those more destructive type behaviors.
0: Tim, one of the things that I am cautious of doing is putting words into like my guest's mouth or post-rationalizing on their behalf. But given your parents were immigrants and kind of lower paid kind of service work, do you think it was a mindset of like one's not enough? If I have abundance, I'm going to take that abundance or if abundance is offered to me, I'm going to take take it all. Um, I know from my own personal point of view, I've never finished, I've never left a, a plate of food unfinished and that comes from not, knowing when your next meal might be or knowing how much food costs in the household and the the effect of that on the family. Do you think that was interlaced in that mindset as a young person or do you think uh, I'm misinterpreting?
1: No, I I think you're, you're probably right. I mean, I've had years and years and years to think about this now, but, uh, but yes, there, there was a very, there was a real sense of urgency in my house of like, this needs to happen now just because it was always like a, a weight hanging over our heads, right? Where it just, I struggle with this today. I I really do. Like there is no reason for me to be fearful of anything in my life. And I'm constantly waking up in the morning thinking what's, what's the bad thing that's going to sneak up on me that I don't see coming. I mean, it's, it's never been a, an argument. I don't think my wife and I have ever even gotten into like a fight, right? But it's certainly been a pattern that I've had to be really conscientious or really conscious of to make sure that this little demon inside of me doesn't like cause a wedge in between me and my relationships for no reason because there's no reason for it to be there um, at least logically. but I think there is just some some sort of like survival mechanism that that recognizes these things that aren't even really there, right? They're not real. They're fears that are never going to come true. But you know, then you start playing the game like do they not come true because I'm always paranoid about the next hammer that's going to drop or do they not come true because they were never going to come true to begin with, right? So uh so yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know too much about that. Like I'm not a psychologist and I have no idea about childhood experiences and how much they, they uh, have an effect as we all get older in life. But I know the feeling is exactly the same. The way I feel today is the same way I felt as a little kid thinking like, oh, right? like what's, what's wrong? What's going to happen? What's wrong? What's wrong? So that's the best way I can explain it.
0: Do you remember the first metaphorical demon that kind of peered over your shoulder that you had to squash? Do you think it might have been the sudden um, surgery that your mom needed uh, or the the sudden treatment that she needed um, with her, her brain um, condition?
1: Uh, it was way before that, for sure. I think in a lot of ways, my mom getting sick was actually the first step to me, like healing. And just recognizing like, this is not working, you know? Um, so the, I think, I think I had a lot of those revolutions when I would skateboard. Skateboarding was truly my outlet. I mean, other than sports, I would just do anything I could to not sit still and not be home. I mean, school was like a prison for me. And I know that sounds like dramatic, but man, every single day of all the twelve years of, of high school, I woke up in the morning just like fucking no. Like not again. Don't make me go, please. It legitimately felt like prison. Every day I was just staring at the clock, waiting to get out of there. And so then I'd I'd play sports and I'd come home from sports and then I would throw my bag in the table and never pick it up and go skateboard until like nine or ten or whenever. Whatever, and so a lot of that alone time that I had as a kid, and I'm still a loner like i'm I'm perfectly fine being by myself, always have been always will be doesn't bother me at all. I could be alone for like months at a time <laughs> and be totally cool with it but uh but a lot of that alone time is really when I started to recognize some of those things. I mean, this is this will sound kind of sick, and i I really don't mean it to be, but I remember falling a few times and like really being cut up and just kind of thinking like it felt good, you know, that kind of stuff. Hard falls on the pavement, really tricks that, I mean, every skateboarder knows this, like you you can't land the trick unless you try it. But there's always that moment where like, if I do this, this is like not a good thing for me to do. And I always did it, you know? And so I think skating in some weird way was me just dancing on the edge a bit, like always pushing it a little bit too far and always feeling good about the pain that I was in. Um, Like I said, I I couldn't tell you what that means or anything like that. But, but the question that you asked was when I first started recognizing those things. And I think, I think as I was skating is really when, when they first started coming up.
0: I love some of your reflections on skateboarding. I was an avid skateboarder growing up as well. And it's, the best. it's it's amazing and it's very underrepresented in Scotland. It's not common at all. You're a total outcast if you skateboard. I think it might be the same in the States, but um specifically in Scotland, our main sports are football and rugby. And if you don't play those, you're kind of ostracized from the tribe. And I think I relate a lot to that because like for context's sake, you might find yourself like jumping down a, a set of stairs of six stairs on a skateboard and you're never going to land that first time. You're never going to land on the skateboard first time. You take a beating over and over again. And for me, it definitely built physical resilience and mental resilience. Um, the, Now I think about it, like having such little fears of 14, 15 year olds, throwing yourself down 10 foot drops, you must be somewhat delusional to do that. But most entrepreneurs totally. and great thinkers and successful people are somewhat delusional. Um, so I, I love that you brought that to life, Tim.
1: Thanks. I, I I totally agree. I wrote a whole blog post about skateboarding and relating it to the Protestant work ethic again, because that's that's the difference. It's not landing the trick. You don't skate so you can land the trick. You skate so that you can skate. And like skating is falling. There's no separating the two. That's all skating is. It's just falling. And sometimes you land (laughs) tricks. And so, like, yeah, there was uh, certainly, like, I don't know, this conversation, I'm just seeing little microcosms of things that seem separated, but it's kind of the same pattern over and over again. Like, I just, I love that process of falling and getting up and falling and getting up. And, like, every once in a while, I'll land a trick and that'll feel good for maybe 10 seconds. And then I'm instantly on to, like, okay, what's the next thing I can do?
0: I love that mate. So when did your discomfort become destructive in terms of substance reliance or abuse? Or can I ask more broadly, sure. when was your first introduction to substance and perhaps abuse um, as a comfort for just for your discomforts?
1: um i I was a an abusive. Substance consumer from the very first time, and I always knew I would be. Like I, I just, I never saw a reason to drink beers other than to try to get drunk. So the the first time I think it was fifteen, probably I remember where I was I was sitting in my in my, my friend Keith's. He had like an above ground pool that uh, that we were sitting in in his backyard and his older brother. But right away, like it was always zero to a hundred from, from the very first time I tried.
0: And I guess besides a hangover at that age, the repercussions weren't that great. You don't have a job to go to the next day. Um, You're probably a bit more vibrant in terms of being able to bounce back from a hangover at the age of 15. When was the first time your abusive substance con- consumption had a real life, tangible effect. Perhaps what comes to mind is the Weezer concert that you went to, but maybe that's there was another.
1: Up. No, that definitely comes to mind. I got arrested a bunch. I, my license was suspended before I even had my permit. Um, that Weezer concert, God, that's so funny. Yeah, that definitely was a consequence. Like other stuff though. So I, I, I had a job from when I was fourteen or so. I used to cut grass at this golf course and. Anybody who's ever worked at a golf course, you know this, a lot of the work that you do happens before the golfers tee off because you have to get the greens cut before the golfers hit the first tee. And so you're up at four in the morning. And so even from the age of like 14, I was up really early walking to, to the golf course to, to cut the greens. And that was a problem. You know, I, I got to tell the story without like laughing, but I got super high and crashed uh, one of the work carts. We call them Cushman's. Cushman is the brand. They're kind of like pickup trucks, but on like golf carts. You know, they're gas-powered golf carts with like a bed in them. (laughs) Yeah, dude, and I I crashed the cart into a a fence once. Um, So that's funny that you brought up the Weezer concert, for sure. The consequences happened right away, but the trouble is they get progressively worse. Like You never go backwards in this in this game. Like it always gets worse and worse and worse. It's very progressive in that way. So so yeah. That's funny though.
0: <laughs> I've went through periods of elective sobriety, not quite since 2010, but perhaps it's six months at a time. And I notice when I go through periods of perhaps excessive drinking, not perhaps every single day, but maybe every single weekend, my antics seem to get worse and worse weekend on weekend. I think it's because I start to normalize some of the behaviors the more I repeat them. But by having a circuit breaker in terms of elective sobriety, I can then step away from those weekend activities and analyze them and understand why they might not be acceptable or good for my health or good for my bank account. Um, But it's only when I can create that circuit breaker, I can analyze the true effects of those nights out, for example, but when I do them week, week in, week out, I start to normalize certain behaviors and patterns. That's good for you.
1: Um, I could never do that. Like for me, it has to be all or nothing because I mean, it's deeper than just drinking. You know, I'm not saying that something that everybody doesn't already know, but the the heavy drug use was a symptom of what was really wrong. And so, you know, like, when I got sober, I would start running 10 miles a day. And I was always a runner. I loved it, and I still do. I had back surgery, so I can't run anymore, which sucks, but but something replaces it, right? And it really takes time, most importantly, and that's the hardest part for people in anything, you just you need to put reps in the same way that you would at the gym and those reps are just days of not picking up a drink or a drug and the more reps you get the more like little victories you get the more pick the weight up and put it down right it's 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 all the same thing um the easier it becomes to recognize how that internal emptiness just shows itself in different places so cool, you know, like I, I stopped doing whatever I was doing. But you know, now all of a sudden, I'm running ten miles a day, like crushing myself for no reason, and I'm a little bit underweight, really, of of where I should have been. And then I'm working just like brutally, obsessively, staying up till three in the morning trying to write from from my website, Sober Nation. and then, you know, I was smoking cigarettes and then I was like, I can't keep smoking. I'm going to kill myself. And so then I'm dipping. And then dipping is like the hardest out of all of them to quit. And I really, really mean that. Quitting dipping was like brutal. What, what's um, dipping? Like chewing tobacco, oh, sticking okay. tobacco in your mouth. Yeah. Um, so th- there's always something and I'm not, it's not gone, right? Like my training partner and I laugh sometimes because when, uh, we get paired up with other people during Muay Thai, like holding pads and stuff. It's just so obvious that <laughs> even on like, you know, just drills, just repetition drills, I'm always going so much harder than everybody else. And to me, I don't get it. Like, why else would I be here if I'm not trying to do this as hard as I possibly can? And my friend Jake is, is kind of the same way. He's like my main training partner. We, we train together a lot. And so again, there's just like little tiny examples of that same behavioral pattern showing up in all different places. But the the point I'm getting to is that you talked about like intermittent sobriety or, or whatever it is for me, that was never possible because if I don't have like a full clean slate where I'm just like raw and ripped open and I just have no choice but to honestly look at the things inside of me. Um, then I never could have gotten anywhere. Like I, I never could have progressed at all in in my health and like my my spiritual health, most
0: importantly. Thanks for sharing, Tim. You talked about not only your alcohol use, but drug use or abuse. And I, I know personally from hearing your story that comes from um opioid addiction and like yeah. drugs such as heroin. I I've never tried thankfully I've never tried it, but could you give like an insight to the listener of both the highs and lows of opioid um, addiction or
1: use? Sure. I mean, the highs are that it's awesome. And I know that that sounds funny, but that's why people do it, because you feel great. Like, technically, opioids are downers because they suppress your nervous system. Uh, I never felt that way. I felt on top of the world all of the time. And so... That's the only good thing about it, but it's so good that you lose perspective on all of the terror that it's bringing to your life. So what are the bad things about it? You lose all your money. You get overdose and die at any second. You lie to everybody. You become like super isolated and insulated from the people that care about you. You treat your body like shit. Like you trouble just finds you, no matter how much you don't want it to, like bad things just happen, and, and I'm not saying that from like a victim type thing, like, oh, well, like all these bad things just happened to me, I say it. It's just this weird law of energy where you're just surrounding yourself with negative energy, so negativity just floods into your life i mean god, I don't know there's there's nothing good about it except that it feels great, and the Crazy riddle is that you can give up this one thing and have everything, or you can give up everything just for this one thing. And it really is like a difficult choice. But the difference with opiates in particular is just that they're so dangerous. You know, like you can be an old alcoholic, and I'm not saying you're going to be happy and I don't recommend it, but like you legitimately can be an alcoholic for like 50 or 60 years and die old. You can't be an old opiate addict. It's just not possible. You'll, you'll just die somehow, whether that's you being in the wrong crowd and you know like something terrible happening to you or just overdosing, which is most likely what's going to happen. You, just, you don't see old heroin addicts. You don't see them. They don't exist. And so you, you really do give up the one thing to have your whole life and in many cases, you give up your whole life to have the one thing, and it it always ends the same.
0: I need to write that down. That, that was a mic drop for me. <laughs> I <off>. loved that. <laughs> I loved that, Tim. I really did. And thank you for sharing that um, with me. I know that you reached a high a natural hiatus with your journey. Can you speak about the time where you kind of decided that you were going to? Give it up for good.
1: Yeah, well, it wasn't necessarily a choice, but the moment when I really knew that something had to change was you mentioned my mom's brain surgery before. And it's really difficult to explain what happened. It's a very rare disease that she had. It's not genetic or anything, it's just shit luck. It just happened to her. Basically, When people learn things, our brain changes, like new neurons and new synapses connect. And then when you forget things, like your brain doesn't need these connections anymore. So they get rid of it. And when that happens, blood flow changes in your brain, like obviously. And there's, and we all like bleed in our brain a little bit every day as our brain morphs to optimize itself for whatever problems are most acute in our lives right now. And so these little bleeds just dissolve back into your brain and back into your body. And it's, it's no big deal. It's just a natural thing. For whatever reason, this stopped happening to my mom and those little bleeds didn't dissolve back into her body anymore. They, they clotted basically. And she ended up with like a ball of hard blood almost like a scab, but like the size of a walnut and rock hard, basically. And it it just ended up landing right on our brainstem. And so we had to fly to California. I'd never been to California before. I'd never even really been out of Philly. And, uh, you know, I was withdrawing terribly on the flight. It's like the thing about it that I remember the most, which sounds so terrible, because, you know, it was, it was such a big, like my mom was going to die, right? But the thing that I remember so clearly is how sick I was, and just how much I I couldn't stand being there. And uh, so there was a pre-op the day before the surgery, where basically my mom was just going to see the surgeon, and I don't know he was going to explain stuff to her, like a a a pre-appointment basically, where maybe my mom could ask some questions or something. And my mom just asked if I would go with her because we're I mean we're really close, you know. My mom had me when she was a teenager. And I'm like her pride and joy, right? Oldest son. Anybody's oldest son of a mother, you would recognize that. But it was different. It was even more deep with my mom and I just because we just had been through so much together. And I just, I couldn't do it. I was so sick that I couldn't go to the pre-op with her. And... You know, my mom had kind of like stroke symptoms at the time. Like her eyes were basically pointing in two different directions, and like one side of her face was really droopy. And I remember just seeing her face and like the anguish that she was feeling because she knew, like everybody knew at that point in my life, I was I was a wreck, and she she knew, but she just didn't have the energy to fight me on it. And so I remember my stepdad pushing her out of the room in a wheelchair, and then I was just alone in this hotel room by myself, thinking like. Just feeling like the biggest piece of shit in the world, you know, and so that really was the moment where it's like this can't, this can't go on any anymore. And I always think it's so interesting when I think about that about consequences, right? Because like all things considered, it it wasn't the worst thing that ever happened to me. Like I felt terrible, but like I was I was still fine, you know. Like I was safe in a ho- hotel room. Like a bad thing didn't happen to me. And it makes me think about, you know, you talked about serendipity before where you're in a situation where you're in a relationship and like, it's so clear that you can't be in that relationship anymore and that it's not working and like all of the terrible things and you just refuse to see them. And then for whatever reason, like maybe it'll be something that, that like your partner says or who knows, just like a thing. And for whatever reason, that one thing is just like, yeah, fuck this. Like, I I don't want to do this anymore. And that was the thing where it was just that moment, even though in terms of like severity of the consequences, it wasn't that bad, but it totally was just the thing that made me feel so terrible that I was like, I I, I can't, I can't keep doing this. And so, so, you know, my mom survived the surgery and she's still alive. Um, She's got like some real, real physical side effects from it. Um, and I flew back home and my dad and my uncle, there was uh a, a soccer game on, a football game. It was it was the hibs, really, because you know, my family's from Edinburgh, so they love Hibernian, and there was a Hibs game on, and they asked if I want to come over, and I I kind of knew basically, and it wasn't even necessarily like an intervention, it was basically just like, hey Tim, sit down, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, All right, what do you want to do here? And so then you know, I, I found a rehab outside of Philly that that would take me, and and that's that's really where my life started. So my life began.
0: Given that you already came to that conclusion, or change conclusion, or conclusion around change yourself, and then you had your father, someone that you're so close to and look up to, kind of validate that decision. Have you ever used that moment in time and? personified it in a way or given yourself perspective in a way whereby now that you're a parent, you imagine having that conversation with your children?
1: Yeah, it freaks me out for sure.
0: Um,
1: I, I hope at least the game I play in my head is that since he's never going to see me, he's just not even going to get it. Right. Like my mom smoked cigarettes. And so I, I, I was so excited to try smoking cigarettes because I saw my mom do it. Right. And, you know, they're, they're Scottish, like they just fucking drink. And so I was so excited to start drinking. And I hope that since my son and my daughter are just never going to see that, it's not going to be something that appeals to them. And if they do, I hope that, I hope that they just don't think it's a big deal you know like it's it's actually not that that big of a deal like alcohol and partying and getting out of yourself is so much more hype than it is value and now that i've been i've been sober for so long i look back and i'm like man that sucks you know like that that looks like not fun at all that sucks why would you even want to do that and so i just i hope and pray that that it just lands on them like that We'll see.
0: I know our approach to sobriety is very different, whereas yours is very all or nothing and mine's more elective and and intermittent. One thing that I loved that you mentioned there was how things actually suck when you're on alcohol. And I'm thinking to myself about a kind of change in behavior in myself when, or a mindset change towards alcohol and myself whereby I've started to do old activities that I would drunk sober yeah. and how richer they become when you do them sober because you feel every single nuance of that experience, how the how the people made you feel in the room when they spoke to you, the discomfort when you approach someone for a first-time conversation, you remember the music, you remember the lighting, you remember the danger in the corner, you see everything and you experience it all. It's not like a persona or an ego or a facade that's experiencing it. Uh, I'm not sure if I've shared with you before, but I do stand-up comedy. And when I first started doing stand-up, I did my first few gigs kind of half-wasted. Like, we were, like, half-drunk, like, two or three pints. Um, But now, like, most of my gigs are kind of midweek. I would never get drunk for them, and I was kind of forced to do them sober. And I felt every single nerve, but I, I also got to experience every single laughter and remember every single person that cracked a smile at my joke. Um, and yeah, I absolutely love or embrace doing activities that I used to do completely wasted sober. And I think that's just a mindset shift um towards alcohol,
1: I think so too. It's uh, it really is being alive. There's a quote from Benjamin Franklin that says, like alcohol is proof that God loves us and wants us to prosper. and i I look at I think about that quote. Sometimes and I'm just like, man, that's not true. Like, that's not true at all. I feel now it's like alcohol is is proof that people just don't know what to do with themselves, basically. And by the way, I don't think drinking is bad. Um, I think I've had a lot of great experiences in my life where I was drinking, but now that I'm on the other side of it, I don't think it was being drunk that made those experiences good. I think it was just it allowed me to give myself an excuse to like fully go for it, like fully have fun in a way that I didn't think I could without it. But then when like I said, it, it takes practice. You wouldn't think that having fun is something that takes practice, but but it it is like so I, I got sober in South Florida and my mom was like a big dancer, and so the, the, we were always having like little dance parties in my living room. And um it's and so I, it's something that I've always enjoyed doing. And then when you are able to go to clubs and not drink and like talk to people and be fine with yourself on a dance floor, or when you're able to, you know, do stand up comedy, which, by the way, in my opinion, is the scariest thing that anybody could ever do, and I, I totally, totally mean that. Um, or like all types of shit in life. Just go to a family event or watch an Eagles game, American football. Like, like I said, I'm from Philly and like, we're really, really into our football team and just hang with your family and enjoy the Eagles game. That is actually life. And it's, I don't expect people to get it because it's kind of like dropping acid for the first time. Like you can explain to somebody what doing acid is like, but you don't really know until you do acid <laughs> you know like so it's it's kind of <laughs> like that like i can explain to people what life is like without needing anything like i need nothing from nobody ever but you're not really gonna understand until you've had that experience so i hope people oh i hope people do what they want to be happy but the thing is there's a lot of people that really really struggle way more people than talk about it basically everybody you know and so i hope the i hope if anyone is listening to this or even if you struggle with something that isn't substance abuse related you know whether it's fucking food or shopping or like cutting yourself or whatever it is like you really don't have to do it and life is way better when when you can cross that chasm
0: Can you talk to me more about sober nation when that became, um, a thing that you wanted to pour your energy into and, um, prosper, um, the lives of other people. Did that come after fourth dimension? I'm guessing
1: it turned into it.
0: Yeah, basically. So
1: yeah, so cool that you know, these things, man, um, The fourth dimension was a blog that I started because I heard a Seth Godin interview and he said, Start a blog. And I didn't know who Seth Godin was. And it was just some guy I was listening to in an interview. And it just, you know, I was really looking for direction in my life. I was in Florida. I didn't know anybody. I was like, just confused. I was like, Okay, I'm a good writer. I've liked writing my whole life. I'm going to start this blog. So that was called The Fourth Dimension. It was a blog spot for the, old-school content guys like me who remember Blogspot. And uh, Sober Nation started because I had a friend who I was getting sober with. I met him in Florida, and we both had about the same amount of time. And he used to work at a company that would call local businesses that were around country clubs And then he would sell advertising to those businesses and then put those ads together in like the country club magazine, basically. And so there would be, you know, like pamphlets all over the country club on the tables and stuff like that that would give discount codes to like the local businesses if you need an electrician or whatever. And uh, he would find leads because he found this directory. I think it was was even golf.com or something like that. It sold for like a billion dollars. And he would, he would look at this directory and this directory listed all the country clubs in the country. And so then he would find the country clubs and then that's how he would search the areas to find local businesses. And then he would know like, yeah, we're putting the magazine together for such and such country club. I think it was a scam, to be honest. Like, I don't think it was a legal <laughs> business. If you've ever been to South Florida, you know like half the businesses there are scams. And, uh, but anyway... He approached me with this idea like, dude, there's this directory that lists all of these country clubs. And I think it's really cool. And I think we should make one that lists treatment centers. And I was like, well, it's funny you say that because like I've been working on this blog for six or seven months now. And I I would write about sobriety a lot. I was like, and people are like reading my stuff and they're commenting on it. And I think I have like a couple thousand readers And that's how it started. I never set out to build like this massive brand. I never set out to change the world. I just was writing because it made me feel better. And then my friend came up to me and had this idea. And then we combined the two. And it really, really was one of those like other catalyst moments where once I started doing it for a little while, I was like, I'm good at this and I love this. And Excuse me I, I think i am I think I'm on to something here, and in terms of my career if if that's what you want to call it as as an entrepreneur it, it all started well, really, it started with the fourth dimension, but it started with sober nation. that's when it turned into something
0: when you labeled it as sober dimen- sober dimensions <laughs> sober nation sorry, excuse me when you Labeled it sober nation. Did you identify then as an entrepreneur now that you're a serial entrepreneur and I guess agency owner, but back then, did you ever kind of identify as an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I had a contracting business. I had a landscaping business in my neighborhood. You know, like I, I always got after it and a little side quest here. My father was a baggage handler. I guess you could call it. like when you get on an airplane, the people that throw the suitcases at the be- in the belly of the plane. You know, there's people that you see on the the runway or the tarmac or whatever it is. And he did that for like 20 years. And my mom was uh, an ER nurse. And I don't know how it is in the UK, but there's different levels of like what you can do as a nurse. And so my mom was an LPN. And I think that means a licensed nurse practitioner. And then the next level from that is called an RN. And an RN is a registered nurse. And so because my mom was an LPN, she was never allowed to like advance in the hospital. She was always like really held down. But it was no fault of her own. She just couldn't afford to go to school, you know, like she had us. And my dad worked at US Air. well, um, I should say he worked at the airport. US Air was a, an airline that that shut down after after this moment. And after 9 11 happened, my dad basically got fired. And right then, my mom lost her job because she wasn't an RN. And I remember my dad calling me. I was on my skateboard and I had one of those big ass, clunky Nokia phones, you know. I remember my dad calling me and telling me what was happening. And I just, I so instantly remember feeling like that is never gonna happen to me. Like, no way. Give 20 years of your life to this job and then they just like ditch you, right? Um, And and also like, by the way, I I know I'm again rambling a little bit here. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a job. Like some people get that vibe from me, like all work is noble and I really mean that. Don't matter what you're doing. If you're mopping floors, like getting up and, and work is noble. I believe that with every being in my body. But just for me, I can't do it. I have a huge authority problem. I hate listening to people tell me anything. And I just I knew, and so even before that happened, like I was already cutting grass in my neighborhood. I was making money too. Like I would uh, just put signs on the telephone poles, and like you wouldn't believe how many people call you to cut their grass. Twenty, forty bucks. You know, I'd do like two or three yards a day on the weekends, and you know, I was like a eighth or ninth grader, just making bank. And so, you know, I, I know, I I went on. Uh, a little bit more than you asked for with your question, but I didn't have the definition of an entrepreneur, right? Like I didn't label myself in any particular way. I think that's a word that's just gotten overhyped in the last 10 years because it's kind of like being a rap star or some shit like that. But, uh, <laughs> for a <podcast> but of- <laughs> I always knew. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is what I'm doing.
0: A unique thing I find about you is that I've heard you describe yourself as quite risk averse when it comes to being an entrepreneur, which is like almost like an oxymoron because most entrepreneurs are um, risk takers or risk seeking. Do you think the financial fragility or job insecurity of your parents is what has given you this kind of risk aversion? Because I guess both your contracting um, business, I guess, Sober Nation, your blogs, and now your agency are Kind of capital insensitive or not intense? The opposite of intensive. What's the word I'm looking for? B- basic- subtle, passive, passive, subtle. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you have taken that experience into the the models of your business. Would that be correct?
1: Yeah, um, I, I do everything in my life the same way. I do things little bits at a time and it's only because i haven't found a better way to do it yet like i i'm risk averse pragmatically because i don't think being risky ends well the people i know that are risky it's like success doesn't come in big lumps And for some people, it does. And a a lot of times, it was kind of an anomaly. For the people that I know and look up to, it always came with time and incremental progress and compounding. And so, yes, I'm risk averse because that quote, like only the paranoid survive, that is definitely me. Like, I'm always looking out to see what's trying to take me out or like who's coming from my business, you know, or like who wants to try to take what's mine for sure but also i just I, there's not a i haven't found a better way to do it and if somebody has a better way to do it you know like i am all for getting the most out of life that i can in the least amount of effort right like i don't i'm not <laughs> i don't have it on like a pedestal to be like the hardest working person I, I just i think it's required i don't think there's a better way so if i do have risk aversion it's it's because in terms of like probability, I think it's, it's, it's my best chance of success.
0: With the inception of sober nation, what point did you feel like you had made it as such in terms of the amount of consumers on your page, the amount of click-throughs to treatment centers, or perhaps was it when you didn't need to eat peanut butter and jelly loaves anymore?
1: I still eat peanut butter and jelly all the time. That'll never change. Um, but no, I, I I don't feel like I've made it at all. I feel like I'm five percent of where I'm I'm capable of. And for context, and, you're
0: turning over millions at the moment, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But you know, like
1: I I like money. Don't get me wrong. And when people say like I don't do it for the money, I think that's a really stupid thing to say because like if you didn't do it for the money, then you wouldn't. Like you would just volunteer and so <laughs> you know like that's a dumb that's a dumb thing to say but i have more things that motivate me i don't need any more money honestly it's just i see it as like a score you know like it's fun it is so fun the rush that i get from landing deals and getting contracts like i love it and Just recently with Copy Blogger, you know, I I built a membership site and this is like the first time where seeing like transaction notifications is a part of what I'm doing. And like that is so cool, dude. It's so cool. I can't tell you I wake up every morning and I don't keep my phone near me a bed. I'm like super against it. It's actually I keep my phone right there in my office. And I don't pick up my phone when I wake up, but absolutely the first thing I do is I go downstairs and I just tap my phone to see. How many strike notifications I got <laughs> when I was sleeping, and so I'm very financially motivated for sure, but it's not because I need more or I feel like I don't have enough, it's just because it's just so goddamn fun, like it is the funnest thing in the world for me, and I would do it i' I'll, I'll never stop, you know like I'll never retire I, I I love
0: it. One of the things I wanted to ask you from a personal point of view is how is it possible to manage or intersect social impact and capitalism or and entrepreneurship or or, and lining your own pockets? Can you do both at once? Can both parties win? Of
1: course. Of course. This is something I feel very strongly about because I don't understand how we got to the point where we think if you're making money, you must be taking from people. like. So for instance, if you're... I've heard this a lot in the treatment industry. Like, well, you're supposed to be helping people. You know, like, how come you're making money? like, well, isn't that ideal? Isn't that what's best for everybody? Like, people get to make money while helping people, while doing work that they feel good about, while serving the world. But, you know, like, we wouldn't think twice about the fact that an oil exec has, like, bank bonuses for a couple million bucks. Like, we just accept that As normal, like, yeah, of course, like he's an extractor, he deserves to get paid, but this person's a giver, you know, like this, this giver shouldn't get paid, the giver should just do things because he or she wants to help people. Like, who the fuck came up with that rule? Doesn't make any (laughs) sense to me. The best case scenario is that you succeed while helping other people, that's the best case scenario for everybody, for you, for the person you're helping, for society at large, for the person's family. So yeah absolutely there is value in service and service doesn't have to be free but that's not a that's not a bug that's a feature like that's the good part of the system
0: I'm really grateful that we spent the last day working of delving into like your revelations your reflections on your story and we finished up on that point just there I'm wanting to ask in light of that what is copyblogger what is Uh, Studs Internet Marketing. How have you practiced what you preached in your last answer?
1: Yeah, thank you for asking about that. It's all been a journey, really. Like it's it's been sequential in a timeline, and you know, I have like a terrible habit of of trying to make things. More meaningful than they need to be, right? But when I look at the journey of of my entrepreneurial career, it's like a real reminder to myself just to continuously take that next step because you just never know what the hell is going to happen on the other side of it. So, so what do I mean by that, right? I had Sober Nation. Sober Nation is going great. I'm building a brand, and I'm just starting to get recognized in this space of addiction treatment. And of sobriety, this was you know a little more than ten years ago, and I know it doesn't seem like a long time, but the internet moves really fast, right? And ten years ago, behavioral health care facilities like didn't know anything about the internet. It just wasn't quite what it was now. And so I was just randomly getting calls from I mean, like hospitals and just different entities saying like how did you do this how did you build this community of like a couple hundred thousand people all looking for help because obviously like that has value to people that provide those services and i was really studying seo and all of the while i was reading this website called copy blogger copy blogger was absolutely my education Everything I learned about writing online, I learned from waking up in the morning. And the first thing I would do is is read copy blog, and I would print them out and I would highlight them and and take notes. I mean, if I uh, still do it for the people watching, you know, like I go, I bring binders with me everywhere because I, I wake up early and I read and I take notes on all the books that I read. And so I just have stacks and stacks of notebooks and binders and shit. Nonetheless, um, copy blogger, taught me how to make Sober Nation great. And as I was studying SEO, I I saw this article. This guy named Dave something. can't remember his last name. He owns a company called Nifty Marketing, N-I-F-T-Y. And he wrote this really long post on Moz about local search and why he decided to focus his agency on local search because the quote was something like, there's 20,000 agencies in the country or however many. Like, why are you any different from them? And so this guy realized when he heard that, like, that's right. I have to be different somehow. I have to differentiate myself. And I just realized, like, damn, I can create an agency that differentiates itself by working specifically with behavioral healthcare facilities. And uh, it was, it really was this like hoof idea that just popped in my head. And so I said, all right, fuck it, I'll do it. And, you know, my last name is Stoddart. My nickname when I was a kid was Stadzi. All my friends go like, Stadzi. I can still hear it. And uh, I don't know why that was the name I chose for a company. It's like a terrible name. But in a way, it's it's kind of good just because of how weird it is. People always remember it. And so i, I that's what I did. I started working with clients one at a time and figuring it out. And uh, that was 11 years ago. And Stadzi is still... Um. And there's there's different metrics of success, you know, but in terms of just volume of cash and of business, Stasi is is the most successful thing that that we've done. And, you know, through that, basically right after my 10 year anniversary of, of sobriety, I was able to acquire that same website, Copyblogger, that site that like meant so much to me, that meant the world to me. And it's something that even till this day. I pinched myself over, you know, real, like I said, old school content, people like me know Copyblogger. Like it was revolutionary in our space. But if you go down the street and you say like, hey, I bought Copyblogger, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? Like, it's not like a household name, but man, it is definitely a responsibility that I take seriously. And it's like a brand that means a lot to a lot of people. and. Being able to buy that company was like a huge honor in my life, and um, and man, like yeah, we're it's we're crushing it, dude. It was not easy. I was so over my head. <laughs> like I thought I knew what I was doing, and I had no clue. But again, that like Scottish stubbornness has just guided me through mistake after mistake after mistake, and and copy bloggers like really thriving. I'm really proud of it. That's awesome,
0: man. That's so, so cool. I, f- I want to ask if you could step in the shoes of young Tim who's picked up Copy Blogger for the first time uh, and say to him, Yeah, in 10 years' time, you're going to buy this damn thing. How do you think he would react, honestly, for to do that perspective shift?
1: I think I would have believed it. Um, yeah. I was having a hard time with my dad when I was younger and he brought me to like this therapist and my dad and I were talking and I remember the therapist was saying something about like, uh, it could be this way. It could be that way. And I remember her being really surprised because my answer was like, why would I want it to be any other way? Like, I don't want to be anybody other than me. Like I'm good. I'm great. Like I can do great things in my life. I'm going to do great things in my life. I just, was at that place where I still had to figure out how to get out of my own way, you know? And so whether it's overconfidence, I I don't think I'm like a cocky overconfident person. I think I just believe in my ability to out suffer people. You know, like I, I really, really believe that if I'm a tough person to go against and it's not, it's not a cocky thing. It's just, I, do not mind being uncomfortable. I, I kind of like it, honestly. And so I think I would have totally believed it. I think I would have said, yeah, okay, that's where we're going. Let's let's see this through. Um, with that being said, there's tons of things that show up in my life every day where I'm like, damn, I I didn't see that coming. Right. And so It's kind of what I was getting at at the beginning where it's like, you never know what the hell is going to happen. Like just keep doing that next right thing because I never, I never would have envisioned the opportunity for copy blogger to like come to me. Right. Like that was weird. That was like divine. How all of these things happen. And all of a sudden it was just like, Hey man, this is coming into your life. Like here it is. It's up to you to accept this gift. Right. And so I couldn't have done that. Right. Like I, that was, that was bigger than me. But in terms of the the effort and being able to like see myself achieve great things, like yeah, I think I always, I think I always knew that.
0: That's damn awesome, mate. I'll listen to you speak about how you can outsuffer people. Do you think? I'm trying to phrase this so it doesn't sound sadistic, but what I'm trying to say is, do you think people need to suffer more? But instead of suffering alone, they need to suffer together, like the sense of shared suffering.
1: Yeah. I think it's like one of the secrets to happiness. You ever read Tribe by Sebastian Younger?
0: No, I've not I've not checked it out. Oh man.
1: Such a cool book. And um he's got so many great examples of this, but the one that there's a bunch of them that stick in my mind, but the one that I think is most pertinent to this is during the Battle of Britain, during Blitzkrieg the whole city of London was sleeping in the tube and they were getting bombed on, carpet bombed every day. And what happened? The suicide rates dropped. Like People showed up for work more. Less and less people called out of work. And as they were interviewed years later, a lot of them say that sleeping in that subway tube, I mean, I don't know if it's a subway. I know you guys call it the tube, right? It's the underground train track, basically. Like it was one of the best times of their life. No electricity, pitch blackness, sleeping on concrete and metal bars. And so many of them reflected on it. Like that was some of the happiest I've ever felt. I just, I knew what we were doing. I knew why we were doing it. I had nothing else to do other than share experiences with, like, you know, you had mentioned the tribe a couple of times with the people that do what I do and the way that I do it. You know, people like us do things like this. And, um, Yes, I think that is absolutely the main driving force behind most people's problem in life is they're just
0: isolated. And in your opinion, addiction is isolative, right?
1: Yes, that's just my opinion. It's it's like known. You know, there's a study about uh, about rats that it's why. 12-step fellowships still till this day, even though they have so little scientific basis behind them, are statistically the most successful. And there's not even really a close second. So they gave a bunch of rats uh, cocaine, basically. And the ones that were alone kept drinking the cocaine. And the ones that weren't were able to get over it. And so... There is a, a chemical dependency when it comes to substance abuse, absolutely. But that's not really it. What, what's happening is, like, the worst thing to do is is be alone in anything in life. And I think that we just have like a deep, deep, prime, primal need that is deeper than like any of us even can appreciate like it's it's even deeper than being a human it's just part of being like in the universe everything connects to something else somewhere and so yeah like i i believe that at its root cause addiction and just and and like any disease of of loneliness is a benefactor of not having like shared suffering for sure
0: do you think that's why you value human capital or human leverage opposed to the other forms of leverage when building a team or building a business infrastructure?
1: Maybe. I'm sure I do. Like, the best thing about my company is that we get to do it together. And I know that sounds like super cheesy, but man, the every new day is a highlight in my life. So I'm not being... Like nostalgic of of a better time, right? But I can't remember a moment in my life where I was just so fucking excited all of the time, every day. And those two years when we had my office in South Florida, and all of us got to be at the same place at the same time together. Like, I just want to be careful saying that because you know my life is a lot different now. I got my wife who's like my best friend. I got. I got my son and my daughter and I, I live in Denver, right? Like it's it's beyond my wildest dreams. And so I'm not, I don't want to compare them as though they're on the same line, right? Like my life is totally different now. And I'm in a different place where like, this is more so what I want. But God, being 24, I was probably 27, right? And uh, riding my skateboard into the office every day and just having so much fun making mistakes, breaking shit, and learning how to build something with other people, I mean, God, its you really, really cannot replace that. If you want satisfaction out of life, like there's nothing that you're gonna find that you can do or you can hack or you can manufacture that's gonna give you that feeling like building something with other people.
0: Mate, I've loved every single nuance and facet of your story and if i were to try and summarize the whole podcast transcript into a title and i have a funny feeling you might not like this title but i'm going to going to run with it for now is i i would label it as from sufferer to savior and what i mean by that is that you have used your trauma your experiences your suffering and developed a business model delivered an offering to people that need it and you've helped yourself through that process but also helped Others, if the listener is someone who is suffering maybe because of addiction or something else, do you have any advice on how they can turn that around and use that as both their adventure for life, but also their mechanism to be of service to the world?
1: You know, um, my sponsor, for anybody who knows what that means, the guy that basically helped me get my life together. He told me a phrase, which I still—I mean, it's uh its right here for people watching the video. It's—it's it's tattooed on the inside of my arm. It says "Make it till midnight," and it's like a little stopwatch that's eleven fifty-nine. And the idea behind it is that no matter what is going on in your life right now, you don't actually have to do anything other than just make it till midnight. So, if you know, the obvious example is like if you're trying to stay sober, right? You don't have to stay sober. Like you really don't. You just have to not drink till midnight. And then what do you do when that happens? Well, you just make it till midnight again. And so the whole one day at a time philosophy has been so pivotal in my life because the further out I think, this more scared I get. But you know, right here right now, I'm chilling here with you. I'm having a great conversation. like there's there's nothing to be afraid of. And so, being present and being purposeful about not planning too far ahead. So that, that can be a little bit uh, controversial. You know, I remember um, I had this guy that was trying to teach me about entrepreneurship and he wanted me to put like a five-year plan and a 10-year plan together. And I was like, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> very, very frustrated at me. He's like, what do you mean this is your future? And I'm like, I know that. I know exactly what you're trying to tell me, and like I'm not doing that. I I live my life one day at a time, and it is absolutely the bedrock of what makes me me. Is I'm not I'm not worried about anything other than what's right in front of me. You know, maybe a couple feet in front of me, metaphorically. But uh, but no matter what's going on in my life, or how hard it is, or how stressed I am, or if a tragedy happens it's, it's going to be okay because I don't have to think about a week from now or a month from now when all of like these consequences start showing up, like whatever those consequences may be. All I have to do, and I, I, like, I cannot state this enough. It's so fucking simple. All you have to do is make it till midnight. And you never have to do anything else. So that, that, that advice saves my life many times.
0: Tim, this has been amazing. If I could point the listeners towards you and your resources and your presence online, where can they find you? Yeah,
1: I, I have a personal site that I, I write a weekly newsletter at. You can just find it at timstodz.com. T-I-M-S-T-O-D-Z. It's it's pretty like entrepreneurial. I basically just document my journey and building businesses. But um, but I'm an open book. So, you know, you can shoot me a DM on Twitter. Tim Stodz is, is the same and I'm um, happy to talk to anybody about anything
0: there we have it. another episode with Tim Stoddard thank you for making it to the end I love when I look at the statistics online and see how engaged you are with these episodes most of you stick around to the end how nuts is that that I am in your ears for an hour with an amazing guest I really appreciate your time and attention please do me the world's biggest favor and share this with people just like you it helps the podcast to grow, it helps me get more statistics that I can outlay to bigger and better guests to qualify them to come on the podcast or to qualify the podcast for them coming on. It would mean the absolute world to me if you did that and I'll see you on episode 98 for a very intense episode.